Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, it's a delight to be here today with Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, who is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He's a leading thinker and author on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, on Jewish history and Jewish memory, and on questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. Yehuda, thanks for taking time to talk. Great to be here with you, Shmuel. So one of the things that uh, many of us are thinking about um, in these last few years is the impact of this current presidency. And I wonder what are some of the um, some of the most poignant reflections you have on this, on how this election and presidency has affected the American Jewish community in the last few years, and how you think it will continue to. So I, I actually, although I, although I think the 2016 election is is going down in American history and in Jewish history as a seismic event, I think. Uh, I think for many Americans, it was the election of a really implausible president. I think for many American Jews, uh, there was a real kind of shattering of a story of what they thought America was. Um, I, I think most of the major issues that are playing out in Jewish life around American politics are not created by the Trump presidency, but are merely exacerbated uh, or held under a magnifying glass by the Trump presidency. What I mean by this is we have been kind of catapulting over the last couple of decades together with other Americans towards a highly partisanized Jewish community. Partisan ideology is by far the strongest divider uh, among Americans. Uh, There's a Pew study on this in 2017 that showed that over the last three decades, partisan identity, uh, your partisan uh, affiliation is a stronger predictor of ideological difference with other Americans than age, race, gender, religion, socioeconomic class. That wasn't true in the late 80s, early 90s, but it is true now. And American Jews are basically, uh, because of the success of assimilation, going along with that story. So what that's produced is we have two Americas, Republican and Democrat, highly um, uh, polarized ideologically, and we have American Jews, um, two American Judaisms, Democrat American Judaism and Republican American Judaism, both of which have a totally coherent internal narrative about themselves uh, and um, and a lot of uh, a self-understanding that's completely logical in terms of how they understand Jewishness and Americanness. No, there's no cognitive dissonance for Republican Jews between their Jewishness and their Americanness, nor for Democrat Jews. Um, but since we're in this polarized larger culture, what that does is it's creating dramatic ramifications inside the Jewish community itself. So Donald Trump in, in, symbolizes the kind of culmination of a much bigger process around the ways American Jews have become American and the way that Americans are divided on political issues more than he is the catalyst uh, with respect to those issues. Yeah. Very interesting. So, you know, there's a common narrative, one that I don't agree with, but um, that he is good for the Jews. Um, it's certainly not pervasive, but quite common. And while I think a lot of his Israel policy has been 
uh, more destructive than helpful. And while I think he's helped to fan the flames of anti-Semitism, whether intended or unintended, nonetheless, it's a common narrative that he's good for the Jews. And I wonder, um, for those who hold that narrative, um, how, do, how does one um, hold uh, that commitment of what's good for the Jews and what's good for minor other minorities in America simultaneously? Meaning, how, how, someone who feels, yes, he's bad for others, but he's good for the Jews. How do we balance self-interest with other interests? So, well, the question of, is it good for the Jews right now is a question of which Jews, first of all. And when we ask the question, is somebody good for the Jews, we have to be careful about asking, the, there's something very different between is somebody good for the Jews and is someone good for Judaism? Those are not the same things. So I can come up, I can have, you know, take a more extreme example, right? Um, the Central European dictators, the Viktor Orbans of the world, who the state of Israel have entered into essentially a realpolitik relationship with, because they basically support the policies of the democratically elected government of Israel. So the state of Israel says these are good people for us to be in alliances with. But meantime, the Jews in those in our countries, Hungary and otherwise, view the rise of these ultra-nationalist right-wing parties, um, exemplified by Orban and others, as really bad for the Judaism and their identity as Hungarians. So the question is, what is it so good for the Jews? Well, a lot of citizens of the state of Israel would say actually having a foreign policy that aligns between the state of Israel and these regimes is good for the Jews who live within the boundaries of the state of Israel and questionably good for the Jews who live elsewhere. It's very hard, uh, I think, increasingly for American Jews, who, by the way, don't really buy the notion on, we don't buy the notion collectively as American Jews of really being part of a collective. If we did, we would behave better towards one another in peacetime. So when it comes to wartime, it's not surprising that people are saying, I, it's not, I, don't, I don't know whether he's good for all the Jews, but if I look at my own set of interests of what I care about as a member of the Jewish people, if I care about a certain foreign policy for the state of Israel that I think is in the, in the existential interest of, of the state of Israel, it's telling, it, it's telling the world that that's what it wants. And, and, those, and the same people who are the architects of those positions keep getting elected. Um, and I can show that there are plenty of Jews inside and emboldened and empowered in the Trump administration. So it doesn't look on its face anti-Semitic then it's, very hard, to, it's hard, very hard to make this empirical claim that somebody is good for the Jews. What we have are two important suggestive claims about what it means to be good for the Jews and two radically different articulations of what it means to be good for Judaism right now. Now, in that, I agree, like my politics are like yours, Shmuley, in that I don't know what it means to be a Jewish people that is entirely interested in self-interest and doesn't care about the fact that what's in our self-interest is damaging to other minorities. I don't know what that, I don't know what kind of Judaism ultimately that leads to. I, I, I see that why it's a powerful ethno-nationalism, but I don't know what kind of Judaism that ultimately is. But it's very hard for us to conduct this conversation when we start from a place of the empirical question of good for the Jews or good for Judaism, when we're in an environment in which we're so polarized in terms of our own, our own collective definition to, that, to those questions. Mm. Mm. So, so being that you brought up sort of the boundaries of cultural identity, ha, ha, what's the state of peoplehood as sort of an, as an axiological moral force today? In the sense of um, post Shoah, there was a sense that we have to double down on self-protection and concern and, and, our, and our collective identity. To what extent in 2020, is there sort of a, a shared moral concern for Klal Yisrael that is, um, that that holds 
uh, a robust and common sense of what peoplehood entails? Yeah, it's, it's weak. Uh, peoplehood has been in decline precipitously in American Judaism for decades. Um, and I think you're right, post-Shoah, uh, Noam Pianko has great research on this. I'm sure you've interviewed him. If, if you haven't already, you should. I have, but I read his book, so. Right, I mean, he has argued, I think, very compellingly. It, I, where, I, where I would push back is, I don't think people gets invented in the 20th century. Klal Yisrael, Knesset Yisrael, Am Yisrael, these are big ideas that have defined Judaism for a long time, but they get translated to a concrete political program for American Juda Judaism um, by the middle of the 20th century, which is essential for the thriving of American Judaism. I think part of its own failed narrative is that it, it believed that it was, it was essential uh, for the Jewish people to stand together in this particular moment, but never was fully honest that it was also in the self-interest of American Jews to be able to kind of emerge as a group or a class within America that was on one hand connected deeply um, to its own roots, like Irish Americans are connected to some mythic Irish identity, but it wasn't nationalist enough to undermine the legitimate standing of American Jews as Americans, right? The way that Noam puts it, peoplehood is like a sanitizing of nationalism. Because if you talk about yourself as being nationalistic, then it looks like you have dual loyalties. But instead, I come up with a version which sounds much, um, much healthier and better. But it doesn't, it, for many American Jews, peoplehood doesn't serve them anymore. Because if the goal was to assimilate into America, why are you forcing me to hold on to this particularism that makes me connected to other Americans who don't look like me, vote like me, live near me, participate socioeconomically like me, and worst of all, articulate their Jewishness with respect to a certain set of values that I'm actually embarrassed by. So people who doesn't hold that, that currency anymore. But what's so interesting about this whole thing is over the last couple of years, there's emerged a discourse on the Jewish left, which I'm in, fascinated by, which is about solidarity, right? There's no, which is the phrase, no safety without solidarity. I love that phrase because peoplehood Jews believe that too. So the question is not, can I psychologically believe in belonging to collectives? We all do. It's not that, I think Putnam, Robert Putnam on his Bowling Alone was partly, was somewhat wrong about this. It's not that we actually wanna be isolated individuals. We wanna to belong to collectives. The only question, the nafgamina is, with whom am I in solidarity? And on the left, and, and basically means, who are my significant others? So on the left, you see the emergence of multi-faith, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions, where we say without one another, we can't be in, in solidarity. And on the right, you see a totally different solidarity. And it's not just with Jews. It's with evangelicals or others who you say, if I'm in solidarity with them, I stand um, stronger by myself. So the good news is Jewish people still believe in solidarity. <laughs> the bad news is it's not clear on either side whether we're willing to actually say solidarity means solidarity with members of my own group. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. You know, so today, moving on to uh, Jewish education and Jewish learning, um, we are inundated as modern people, especially those who are confined to the home right now, we are inundated with um, options of that are, I mean, it's always been true, but it feels more true that the competition in the landscape of politics and entertainment. And it feels like, um, that as Jewish education becomes more marketable within that arena, we try to play sometimes by the rules of that competitive game. And I wonder how do we hold on to a real thick Jewish learning experience, keep Jewish intellectual engagement one that is, I hate to use the word authentic, but I think you know what I mean there, 
um, while also competing within the popular demand sphere without fully assimilating into it? It's a great set of questions. I hesitate to say that it's one question. So I'm going to give a couple of reactions. The first is, um, so just a quick reaction about this kind of coronavirus, COVID-19 moment, and the move of all of these opportunities for learning and engagement online. Um, I think part, some of this is really exciting and interesting because it's showing us that we could learn differently. Uh, we can do digital online, um, that the, the opportunities should be available to us. And some of that will fade over time as people become bored of this medium uh, or exhausted by it. If your whole life is on it, you're gonna start, stop also logging in at night for these types of things. And what it forces us to think about is where on Maslow's hierarchy of needs is Jewish education and Jewish learning. And when, when Jewish education is essentially just at the top, effectively like, uh, is it serving some measure of self-actualization? Or in reality, is it, um, is it entertainment? Is it a bonus? It is something that I'm compelled by, but I don't really need. Uh, then you're right, it, it's, you know, could say, uh, uh, it, it, it disappears, uh, it flutters away, and it's not clear to me that Jewish education can fully compete with the offerings that are available to us as Americans and as humans right now, morally, intellectually, and spiritually. Question is, can we do the work around moving down the pyramid of needs such that what, what Jewish education offers us are the deep existential psychological um, fulfillment, the stuff that grounds us, that roots us in the past, that helps us understand the future. In our work at Hartman, I say this a lot to our audiences, so much of the condition of what American Jews are experiencing today is revolutionary uh, in the span of Jewish history. And we've experienced three seismic revolutions in American Jewish life around identity, ideology, and infrastructure. And as a result, most of what we've inherited as American Jews over the past century doesn't work for us anymore. We need a new Judaism as it relates to our identity, our ideology, and infrastructure to make sense here. That's really hard, and most of our educational infrastructure hasn't fully caught up. But what hasn't changed is as useful here, which is that human beings have not anthropologically changed in our fundamental needs, which are for things like community and meaning and purpose. So if you really believe, as I do, as I'm sure you do, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, or, or watchers, um, that actually Judaism is better than simply a product that's supposed to compete in the marketplace, that it actually is deeply connected to our fundamental needs as human beings, as searchers for God, as all of those things, then it's simply a matter of adjusting to be able to answer the same essential human needs of community, meaning, and purpose, but simply outside of the vehicles, frameworks, and biases that it has been lingering in a long time. And I, I see that there are, there's a lot of good news around Jewish education and Jewish creativity. I think some of us, myself included, feel a little frustrated that some of the old forms are holding on for longer than their utility. And what that's doing is it's kind of blocking the organic rethinking and reimagining of Judaism to answer those fundamental human questions because of the attachment to, to institutional loyalties. Do you, do you see another major shift happening in the coming years that is going to require another sort of revolutionary type of transition before we've even caught up to this one or do you, since things are moving so fast? I think it's a state of mind question, which is, um, so if you're living in revolutionary times, that's already hard enough. But what happens when you're living in revolutionary times, but you're thinking in evolutionary categories? 
then you're, you're, you're doubly challenged because not only are things getting harder, but your whole paradigm with which you're viewing the world is one that suggests that it's moving slowly enough that all I need to do is make a little fix here and a little tweak, a tweak here and I tinker with this a little bit, I'll be able to catch up. As a result, and I hear this from folks around the country, JCC heads and day school heads, they always feel like they are behind the trends because they're thinking in evolutionary terms rather than revolutionary terms. So in some ways, a psychological adaptation to, to thinking about a revolutionary category could prepare you to be able to withstand the changes that will, that will come in two or three years from now. But it, there's very legitimate Jewish reasons why we should be scared of thinking about revolutionary times. Our, the whole legacy of Chazal, of our sages, is, is that you actually are, you look over a thousand year period of rabbinic history, and the world changed dramatically, and technology changed, and everything changed. But I've m managed to subtly convince you that everything is the same. That's a brilliant, we we've inherited that. And the other thing is that like, we know that there are revolutionary moments in Jewish history that force us to write a new Judaism, like the Shoah, the Holocaust, like the birth of the State of Israel, which produce massive proliferation of new ideas about Judaism in their wake. Um, but we haven't had that in America. We've had radical continuity. And radical continuity is the enemy of, of the process by which you, you realize that you've actually been in the process of revolutionary change. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So in this moment, um, I was gonna ask you how is the coronavirus impacting North American Jewish life and Jewish institutions? But we know how it is. Um, we know that there are um, gathering spaces that are not being met in. We know that programs are being moved online or just canceled. We know that budgets are struggling and maintaining staff is struggling and the like. But I wonder, like, what do you foresee in the coming months based on these trends? How, uh, what, are, what are some, or, or maybe even asked differently, what are some precautions we might put in place in our thinking now to prevent some destructive things from happening in the coming months and years? So I want to suggest that I think there are going to be two opposite trends, uh, and I and recognize the paradox of putting out these opposites, but I think both of them are going to happen. The first is we're going to see significant disruption to the point of destruction in the Jewish educational institutional landscape, less because of the coronavirus itself and more because of the economic recession and possibly depression in its wake. Um, in some ways, uh, pathologically, I think it's good news. There are a few places where this is going to accelerate processes of murders and acquisitions and closures of failed institutions because it, that's just going to inevitably happen. Um, even though I, I am arguing, and I published a piece on this recently, that there needs to be a process of collective mobilization to at least support the human beings in these Jewish institutions, our synagogues, our Hillel's and JCC's through this process. And, and the fact that we have weaker communal, communal solidarity makes me very anxious about whether we can actually hold up and save our community institutions. So I think that one process is gonna be significant institutional transformation. I'm party to some of the conversations taking place around that. I think they are both scary and exciting. I think there, there is the potential though for, for the radical opposite trend as well in Jewish life that we should look for, which is I think we are gonna re realize how important analog Judaism was when, when, we when all we have for months at a time is digital Judaism. And I've seen a few examples of this recently. We had a loss in our family and I saw what it meant to have a rabbi who a human being, not a digital responsa, a human being who holds people and takes care of them and runs um, uh, the physical ritual 
of, of burial and walking people through that. Um, I think people will crave that. I, I taught a class recently with a group of learners in Northern California and Silicon Valley who I learned together for 10 years with uh, multiple times. I've flown out to, to teach them. And at the end of our class, which was fine, one person said something extraordinary, which was, you know, as I'm sitting here on this Zoom call, I realized that what I thought I liked out about, about these classes was the cerebral intellectual encounter. Said, but it wasn't. It was actually sitting around a table with all of you and I miss you. So I want us to listen for what could happen as a result of this crisis also is that, and, and, and you know, from a perspective of Judaism, forget about our institutions, our, our fundamental human anthropological technologies of human beings sitting with other human beings, of, sh of showing up at shul, of sitting with a tactile piece of paper text in front of you and not the digital version of human relationships, those are old and really, really good. Um, so I, I think there's gonna be, those, those are the two trends to look for. What's the institutional overhaul that's gonna have to happen? And, and what might a re-embrace of, of analog Judaism for a digital age, might, in what ways might that be possible again? Friends, uh, be sure to check out Dr. Yehuda, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer's writings and teachings online, one of the, the most insightful communal leaders in our time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.